Hello and welcome to LPO Offstage. I'm Yolanda Brown and this is the podcast that gets behind the scenes with the members of the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Today we're finding out how another group of LPO musicians got to where they are now. From training to the first time they laid eyes on their instrument to the hardest moments of their career. We're back recording remotely today as at the time of recording, Storm Eunice is on our doorsteps and about to hit London. So we're safe and hunkered down inside. But I'm joined by bass trombonist Lyndon Meredith, violinist Emma Oldfield and viola player David Quiggle. Great to see you, David, Emma and Lyndon. Hi. 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 It's great to see you. I'm looking forward to hearing how you started your relationship with your instruments. So I'll start with you, Lyndon. Why the trombone? Why not? Yeah, that's a good answer, yeah. Um, (laughs) Before trombone, I actually started with the piano. I was six years old and my mum used to play the piano. And uh, I remember going to sleep at night so I could hear her practising the scales downstairs, you know. So that was sort of where music came in, you know. And then my sister wanted to learn because my mum was learning. And then, of course, I wanted to learn because my sister was learning. (laughs) So that from the age of six, but then at the age of eight, somebody came round to the school, there was a local music service where anybody could have music lessons, anybody could have an instrument. And they came to the classroom, knocked on the door and said, would anyone like to play a brass instrument? If you do, go to the music room. So I thought, brilliant, I'll have 10 minutes off this lesson and I'll go and, I'll go and see what's happening. <laughs> I'm glad we got the truth um, straight out. That's good, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Honesty is always the best Absolutely. policy. Absolutely. <laughs> So anyway, I went along and everybody had a, a buzz on a mouthpiece and saw all these shiny things. And that was it. Wow. I, I wanted one of these, like a magpie. Yes. I, I wanted a shiny thing. <laughs> so uh, I was given a cornet at first, being quite small. Mm-hmm. They usually give the big instruments to the big kids and the small instruments to the small kids. It's true. It, it's a theory I've got. Because if you look at trombone players and tuba players, they're usually quite tall yes. or big. Or, you know. And I think that's why. So anyway, I went off home with this cornet. And the, the lad next door was given a trombone. So I sort of went round. We both got these instruments and I took my cornet round and just messing about with them. And he got this trombone. I thought it was incredible, this thing. It was so visual. Yeah. You know, obviously with a trumpet you can see the valves moving up and down. But with a trombone it was such a visual thing of moving the slide and the note changed. I thought it was incredible. So uh, I went back home and said to my mum, I don't want this cornet, I want a trombone. <gasps> So mum went to the school and and that was that. I've been on the trombone ever since. The fact that when you find an instrument that's right for you, sometimes, you know, you have to go through a few of them. I was tall for my age. I mean, now you wouldn't know it, but um, they gave me a tenor saxophone when I wanted to play the oboe. Um, And (laughs) here I am now. But, um, (laughs) But actually, when you identify the sound you want to make or the instrument that really appeals to you, there's no breaking that bond, is there? Absolutely. The instrument chooses the player more than the player chooses the instrument, I think. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah, absolutely. Emma, what was your introduction to the violin? Was it the first instrument you saw? No, my story was actually quite similar to Lyndon's. I played piano from about the age of six. We had one in the house and it was just... My mum also played just as a hobby. That was sort of my introduction into music. And then... Around the age of eight or nine, someone came round the classrooms and said, who wants to play an instrument? And my first choice was actually the flutes. Ah. I don't know why. I think that's just what appealed to me at the time. 
But for several reasons, I think they had two flutes in the school. Two people got there before me. So the story was that my arms weren't long enough to play the flute. And I distinctly remember them holding this thing up against me and saying, no, there's just no way you can be a flautist. I remember being devastated at the time. And later that day, just by chance, the violin teacher came round, knocked on the classroom door and said, we've got one space left in the violin class. I think they just wanted to see how many kids they could squeeze into this violin class. <laughs> so I said, yeah, sure, I may as well do that then. And played it ever since. Did it still feel like a consolation prize or did it then become your voice? I remember being sent home with this violin from school really early on. And it was like a battered, barely functioning thing. I remember the teacher saying, to begin with, it's only plucking that you do. That's sort of basic for the first few weeks. I said, whatever you do, don't take the bow out. Um, just pluck. But they sent me home with the bow. And I remember be- I remember thinking, I'm definitely going to get the bow out tonight. <laughs> I got home and the first thing I did was like, get the bow out of the case. Like... <laughs> Didn't know what I was doing, but just desperately wanted to make a sound. And I think I was pretty obsessed immediately, actually. And and David, I'd love to hear your introduction to the viola. I always wonder about people's journey to playing the viola because we hear all of the, the jokes and the comments. I think the viola is a beautiful instrument. How did that relationship start for you? I'm not going to be very original here. I just, uh, my dad plays the piano. Yep. And actually, when I was born, he was making his living as a lounge pianist. And now that he's retired, he's doing the same <laughs> again. But, <laughs> but in the end, also, someone came around with the idea of, uh, of a string program at my primary school. And uh, I started playing the violin, sort of a Suzuki program. We started out with, I, I remember, we started right in with Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star and that kind of thing, with little tapes on the fingerboard. So I knew where to put my fingers down. And that kind of thing. And and it just, it, it sort of grew from that. It happened to my great-great-grandfather, who I never met, had made several violins. And so we had some violins and, and I started out on a full-size violin made by him, but and more like a fiddle, really. I mean, we still have some of them. They're not really classical instruments as much as kind of Norwegian fiddles, uh, that kind of thing. Maybe that's why I play the viola. I started on something that was so big. I don't know. But eventually I, I gravitated toward the viola. I think it shows me as well later on. I look at pictures of myself as an adolescent and I, I, I'm this sort of slender body with the, sort of a big mouth and braces and huge hands. And like somehow I became a violist. And do you remember that first time when you transitioned from the violin to the viola and thought, I'm not going back? I resisted at first because it was considered somewhat of a, like admitting failure as a violinist mm. somehow. So I ended up, I ended up getting my high school like eighteen year old, nineteen year old diploma on violin and viola. I'd been taking lessons on both by then, but it was chamber music really that sort of sealed the deal with viola. I started somehow when I started playing viola, I was playing in better groups all of a sudden as well. Well, no, I can really hear the passion from day one from you all about this introduction to music and and playing and just wanting more. When did it then transition into wanting to be a profession and really just thinking, I want to be a musician? Lyndon? Well, that's difficult. I never really thought about it like that. It just sort of happened. Mm. You sort of go straight into a band. When you start playing an instrument, once you can play two or three notes, you're straight into a band. So then straight away, there's this social aspect of music. 
more than just sitting at home and practicing or, or not practicing or, or whatever it may be. And it was as much that as it was the music, I think. I just loved going to band and seeing everybody else and playing along with everybody else. And, of course, there's people of different standards. So once you're in the first band, then you want to be in the next band up. So yes. you practice and you do your auditioning. And it was almost like, not competition, but... Um, I think that's what keeps you going. So it was as much about the social as it was about the music to start with. And then, of course, you know, you, you go up the grades and, and up the bands and sort of before you know it, you're in you know, the brass band and the orchestra and, and whatever else, and it just sort of goes from there. After school, I then joined, like, a, a proper brass band. I mean, we, we had area brass bands, which was from the music service that I talked about earlier. So you, you got the different bands. It, it was always brass bands for me. That was my favourite uh-huh. thing. I played in the orchestra as well, but I, I just loved playing in the brass bands. Probably because I got a bit more to do. Absolutely. Because the orchestra really quite often. <laughs> we do very little, you know. Um, and so in the brass band, at least you're playing all the time. So, so I enjoyed that. When I sort of got to um, maybe sort of A-level time, I joined a sort of proper contesting brass band. One of our teachers at Dudley had taken over conducting this brass band in Cheltenham. It was the Flowers Flowers Brewery Brass mm-hmm. Band. Yeah. So we used to go down there twice a week, Monday and Friday, and we'd play and then we'd, you know, get a cheap pint in the in the brewery bar afterwards. <laughs> Motivation. Um, <laughs> oh, well, yeah, yeah, sort of. Musically, it was fantastic because you, you got things to do that you didn't get to do in the orchestra. Obviously not that I, I don't enjoy orchestra playing. Of course I do. I, I love it, but... Uh, Talking myself out of a well, job. You, do you still play in the brass bands now? I don't get to. I just don't get the time. Yeah. It's a real shame because we're very busy uh, with the orchestra and we're sort of two, three concerts every week. I just don't get the time to do it. I still listen to brass bands and I still try and keep up with the news and try and see people, but um, not as much as I'd like to, you know. Absolutely. Maybe when I retire, maybe. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's always time. Yeah, yeah. And Emma, how much was genre a driver for you in making music um now being in the orchestra you get to play a vast repertoire but it is fundamentally classical choosing the violin or the violin choosing you did it lead you down a a path of playing a particular genre i've always been drawn to classical music even from a really young age which is a bit bizarre but i do remember being in primary school and and knowing that i was sort of in the minority with that yes but yeah more recently probably I've had more opportunities to sort of branch out of that, which is important and refreshing and means I come back to what we do in LPO sort of with a slightly different perspective. Definitely things to gain from that. And what other aspects would they be? What other genres are you playing in now? So recently a friend of mine started an ensemble which is primarily to champion female composers. But within that, we've been playing all genres from really really early music to friends who are writing pop songs now we recently did a pixie lot video and we just did a gig at a jazz cafe with a singer one of the main things i've taken from that is learning to be a bit more spontaneous on stage like having to adapt to things really quickly a more informal way of rehearsing maybe which can have pros and cons. (laughs) Um, But definitely stretches a different part of my skill set. And David, you spoke about your father playing the piano, playing professionally, and your great-grandfather being a maker of musical instruments as well. So was the idea that you would become a professional musician inevitable or did you have to dream it, think it, strive for it? I 
at first I really didn't think of it as something that would become a profession. But there was a, a moment when I joined the Seattle Youth Symphony, I suddenly was very inspired. We were playing the, the Derek Cook version of the Mahler 10th Symphony. And I was sitting in the back of the second violins. I'd never seen so many sharps and flats in my life. <laughs> and somehow I just remember going home one day from one of those rehearsals. I stopped at a music store and bought a bunch of violin music. And it was the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto, I think. I spent about four hours reading through it, like trying to at least. I think it was that day I, I went downstairs to, to where my parents were and mentioned the fact that I was considering being a professional musician. I don't know. It just happened from there. I had lots of support from them. And then we were up and down from Seattle to Vancouver and to Bellingham and just for private music lessons. I was very fortunate to have that support. That's for sure. Absolutely. And I've heard some of your journey in, a, in our previous episodes. And it, it's lovely when you hear the support that young musicians get to bring them to where they are now. I want to sort of touch a bit on the training aspect, because you're very humble with it all. It's kind of like, yeah, then I went to the next band and did the next grade. And then I went into the next place. I mean, it does take some drive. And all of this involves a form of audition. How did you sort of adapt to the idea of being on test for a lot of the slots that you were filling, David? Uh, well, I was, in a way, I was kind of lucky in that sense that I haven't taken many auditions in my life. Really, I mean, auditioning for a music conservatory was a big one. I guess I was very happy to, to get that. I had to practice a lot. I mean, just mm. that was mainly I was very, I was terrified of uh, a failure. And so I practiced a lot for those things. <laughs> and then my career sort of opened up in a way little by little um, and kind of for, over a long period of time without really having to audition for things. Maybe the biggest moment was uh, preparing a major string quartet competition or a, very, uh, a bunch of them with a quartet. Uh, that was the most competitive moment probably in my entire life. Practice is inevitable and it's needed in order to keep on rising within the ranks. But that support is really, really important. Lyndon, did you feel sort of supported and pushed up as you were rising through the ranks? Absolutely. Do you know, I think we all get these opportunities, but if you take an opportunity, it's the support behind you that can sort of propel you. Mm. So much support from home. Parents and uh, grandparents. I mean, they hardly ever missed a concert. And it must have sounded awful at times, you know, especially that first junior band concert. I thought we were brilliant, you know. And I don't know what it must have sounded like to mum and dad at the time. It's all fantastic, well done, keep going. And the noise that must have come when I was practising at home. Another function of support is sort of not being pushy, but mum would always make sure that I did my practice. Mm. And it was ten minutes a day, and to me it felt like ten hours. Because I just wanted to play, I just wanted to play tunes, I wanted to play in the band, I didn't want to sit at home and play by myself. So it was that support that got me through. And of course, as you're going through the bands, you start having to go a bit further afield. And so a lot of my parents' time was taken up taking me to band practice or orchestra practice or to a concert on a weekend. Or, you know, when they'd been sort of working all week and wanted a Saturday night off, we were doing a concert. <laughs> exactly. And the way it was done then, all of the bands played in the same concert. So you might have been playing five minutes of a two-hour concert and they had to sit there through all of it. So, you know, <laughs> sort of looking back, it's incredible what they put in, isn't it? Um, my granddad, in particular, on the one side, was a big music lover and he used to make me these little mixed tapes of classical things and brass band. 
He hardly ever missed a concert. Even if we were playing in a shopping centre with a junior band, he just happened to be passing. And it was a bit of a running joke. Um, <laughs> with the youth orchestras. <laughs> Where, where's your granddad? You know, and it came to the point that if we were doing a concert, we'd always point him out and give him a wave, oh. you know. We played at this national festival of music for youth. So any band in the country, school bands and whatever, can audition. And the finals are done in London at the Festival Hall, which is, of course, where we're now based. You know, that's, that's the office. And I remember Grandad came down on the couch with the orchestra. Where was, sat where there was all home? Afternoon. Where's home? Home was D- uh, Dudley. Dudley, OK, Dudley yeah. in the Midlands. Three hours on the couch, came all the way to Festival Hall with a bunch of screaming kids. And I still to this day remember exactly where he was sitting. Oh. In Festival Hall, it sounds a bit soppy, doesn't it? No, but, it's, you know, it's Sometimes brilliant. when I'm when we go and sit there for a concert, I sort of look over. I remember the exact seat where he was sat and sort of have a little think. So I've always felt that sort of support. That's it's inspirational, yeah. and actually, you know, I meet so many parents now whose children are either excelling or really have a passion with music. They realise the commitment it takes as a parent of of a young musician, but yeah, yeah. actually, just being present. You don't even need to understand the music. You don't need to to be able to know if it was right. Or wrong it's just the presence and yeah. um, I feel it now I've got an eight-year-old who's uh, started the cello this year and you can see it in her she loves practicing she loves performing but the minute that you're there or the minute that you peek around your head around the kitchen and just listen in there's something special that comes so I think that would be motivation for all the listeners that have young musicians around keep on listening to them keep on encouraging absolutely yeah yeah Emma how about your transition into professional playing. You you graduated not long ago and you joined the LPO. How does it feel for you arriving where you are now? It's felt like that's happened fairly quickly after graduating, especially with the pandemic in between. I did um, a scheme with the Halle Orchestra in Manchester for a year. So yeah, it was pretty fresh when I auditioned for this job and I'd been on trial for a year or so just as lockdown happened the first lockdown so when that happened there was a slight sense of that's it like is that a year of trial wasted is anything going to come of this now really didn't hear anything for many months (laughs) so when I got that first message to come in when the orchestra started recording these concerts for Marquee TV then found out I'd got the job (gasps) which (laughs) was such a huge relief because we were still quite deep into the pandemic at that point. And it was just amazing to know that when normality returned, you know, I had a a job to go to. And David, you touched earlier about the idea of not wanting to fail and you can hear your dedication and the hours that you were able to put into practice and the support that you had. But what is it? And I guess this will be inspiration for those that are listening, that are pursuing this career in music. How do you overcome either the fear of failure or even not considering it as failure at all? I mean, I remember going for a couple of things that I really, really wanted. And in hindsight, I did quite well coming runner up. I was very young for the job or this and that and the other thing. Now I I don't consider them failures. I actually learned a lot from them. You've especially learned from the experience of going into something not completely prepared and getting your just reward for that. (laughs) I auditioned for the LPO in, when was it, 2017 or 2016? I've been coming fairly often to play guest principal or or a few times at least. 
they asked me to uh, to have an audition. I actually went to a, a friend's house in the countryside in France, and I was by myself for a, a period of time where I was just practicing. I decided, okay, this time I'm not going to do the same thing of having a concert in a different country on the night before the audition. <laughs> and so I really did practice, and and I I was uh, I felt quite good about that experience because. I mean, I knew that I was prepared. And I think that's the most important thing is, is to prepare. I'm seeing some nods from your colleagues here. And Lyndon, what was your take on, on the idea of you were saying about progressing up the ranks? Was there a lot of practice and dedication that went into it? And what happened if it didn't quite work? Would you class it as failure? Now, I've got to be careful because <laughs> my mother might listen to this. I can't say that I practised all that much. Yes, it's OK. I, that's I've, all right. I've, I've, got, I've got to be completely honest. <laughs> Or in a way, maybe I did. I just didn't see it as practice. I just loved playing in bands. So I'd say that I didn't practice very much, but I played a lot. I was playing all the time, you know, hours a week sometimes from a young age, Mm. you know. And I think it's more than just playing. It's learning to listen. It's learning to play in a group. It's learning to tune. It's But you don't realise that you're actually learning it at the time. Yeah. It just sort of happens organically, you know. So I didn't. I did my ten minutes. Usually being locked in a room and do your ten. And there was literally a stopwatch on it. But I just love playing in the bands. So, um, and then of course, sort of the higher up the sort of ladder you go of of better standard bands and orchestras, the more you play and the better you get. And then the more you play and the better you get. It, it's very organic. I think it's not something I enjoy doing. Is playing by myself. I've always seen music as a team game, and especially being a brass player, it's very rare we play by ourselves. We were talking about auditions earlier. It's such an unnatural thing to do for a brass player, especially as a bass trombone player. I mean, I don't get trusted with tunes, but then to have to stand in front of three or four people and play tunes for 20 minutes, it's just it's just really unnatural. So is that what the audition process is, playing something, but it's not really what you would be playing if you get the job? Yeah, I mean, you'll play a couple of tunes. There'll usually be a, a cello suite, actually. Right. They lend themselves very well to trombone. And so a standard audition piece would be a Bach cello suite and then maybe a piece written for the instrument and then some orchestral excerpts, which, again, is very odd to play an orchestral excerpt by yourself because it doesn't really sound like anything, you know. It, it's just a part of a bigger... It's like, look at what one piece of a puzzle doesn't really show the picture, you know. Yeah. But luckily, as David was saying before you can sort of rise up the ranks without having to do that many auditions because a lot of it's natural. You sort of People ask you to do concerts and when you get to a certain standard, like, you know, the top orchestra in the area, you'll then get asked to go and do a concert for a choral society on a Saturday or, or that sort of thing, you know. And it just goes on from there, really, and you don't really notice it sort of going where it is. When I was saying about I never really intended to be a professional musician, it just, it just sort of happened, you know, it takes over. And before you know it, you're not really doing anything else. And Emma, all of this, it makes sense. You know, it's in our minds, it's how we prepare, how we feel. But what about the external element? Are there rivalries that happen quite a lot, especially with violins? I mean, there are a lot of violinists, but very few places in these prestigious uh, orchestras that you're in. Is there rivalry? Do you have to overcome the element of competition between players as well? I mean, yeah, I'd be lying if I said no. (laughs) I mean, just by nature, the audition process and the trial process is super competitive. And it makes it really difficult that most of the time as well, you're you're 
well, I certainly have been competing against many of my closest friends as well. So I went to music school quite early on, but it means that most of my closest friendships have, have been formed around music, other violinists. Like most of my best friends are violinists and we go for the same jobs and we do the same auditions. Sometimes we do the same trials. So you can't really think of it too competitively because firstly, it'd be hard to maintain friendships through that. But also you see the amount of work that everybody puts in and you you just want the best for, for everyone. Not every opportunity is meant for everyone. Um, I certainly don't feel competitive with my friends. I think I want to be your friend. That's amazing, Emma. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Same trials, can you imagine? That's beautiful. But actually, you're right. You know, being a professional musician, you're in it 24-7, really. It's it's either in your mind when you're preparing or it's, you know, when you're touring. And you really do need people that understand that lifestyle and that mentality. So I understand it. And I'm glad that you can all support each other. David, I'm intrigued by your journey. I've, I've got a little map of the world here that I've been pinpointing different countries that you've been mentioning throughout the podcast and so do you go where the music takes you and then you'll settle into the surroundings or do you also take into consideration the country as well? I think I always went where the music was taking me for a very long time Um, maybe now I would consider the country more I did have a brief experience of going back to the states because for some reason a bit of a midlife crisis led me to believe that I needed to head home somehow. And mm-hmm. I was there about a week before I realized that I'd made a terrible mistake. And uh, I ended up back in Spain uh, pretty quickly after that. Spain, it's, I almost feel more home there than anywhere else in my in the world at the moment. But I also got married and lots of personal relationships and the years and years of my life spent there. So that's... And it's interesting you speak about Spain. I can see the smile coming to your face as you speak about it. You play a lot of flamenco as well, right? Well, there was a period. I think my last little thing was actually in Germany that I, I arranged some things for saxophone quartets viola and and people doing palmas with the claps yeah 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 for a festival because somebody uh, somebody told the lady that organized the festival that i did flamenco and she was like oh can you do something with that i was like okay <laughs> but yeah there was a period in, in madrid when i was living in madrid i was a little bit lost professionally i was teaching i had to teach a job that, that sort of allowed me a lot of freedom to explore other things so i was Exploring some jazz, taking some lessons and, and getting interested. I, was, I had already been interested in flamenco, but then suddenly the opportunity came to play in a, in a project mm. that was very interesting where I had to learn. It was very, I mean, like Emma talked about, like the, the different levels of formality. It's a completely different oral tradition. People don't read music and they don't refer to the notes by their names or the key signatures. They call different key signatures and notes by their place on the guitar, you know, like uh-huh. tres por medio or like something like on the third fret, like in the middle is a, is a key signature. You know? like, I, it was, I was way outside of my comfort zone, obviously, because it was something that I was, I had to really like do a lot of listening and recording. And, but I ended up playing in, with some of the most famous uh, flamenco dancers, especially and, and guitarists in Spain for a period they compose by ear and by memory. So if I would go away to teach for a couple of days and come back to rehearsal, then things would be completely different. And I would have to sort of, there were a couple of guys, Juan Parilla and a fantastic Hungarian gypsy cellist, uh, Slovakian Hungarian called Barnabas Hangoni, 
who had been playing flamenco for years and he also had been trained classically so he could lean over and if I just didn't understand anything he would just take a pencil and write out the rhythm that was being played on and I'd be like oh, okay he <laughs> put it in he could put it in my language and I had some help there it was quite a thing it was a big stretch of the brain yeah yeah it is lovely to hear all of you actually speaking outside of the remit that you you work in from you know the brass bands to flamenco to pop you know it's it's lovely to hear that your world of music is is so wide and varied and I guess as you said Emma it opens your perspective and can still feed back into what you do on a daily basis I want to touch again on music education in general how do you think nowadays it, it works is it still a similar story that you've had Lyndon it's very different these days, I think. When I was sort of coming through as a young musician, everything was free. You got free lessons, you got an instrument that you could use for free. All of the bands were free. Whereas nowadays, I don't think that's the case. I think a lot of it um, has to be paid for by parents. You can hire an instrument, you don't get given an instrument. It's very different. It's a real shame. We could see sort of, as we were coming through, that we would get cuts gradually each year and you'd get less and less mm. for free or, or fewer things would happen. The brass bands are still running and, and the way that brass bands have always run is that you can go to your local brass band, ask them for lessons and ask them for an instrument to use and a lot of the time you'll get it. There will be someone who will happily come and give you a few lessons and you'll get a cornet or a, a trombone or, or, or whatever. I mean, that still happens in, in that scene which is maybe one way for young younger musicians, if they're interested and maybe don't have the support or, or be in the position to be able to go through the sort of local authority route. There are ways of doing things. Mm. I mean, brass bands are one for brass players. I'm sort of losing touch with the brass bands now because of I just don't get to do it as much. Yeah. But um, that certainly was, it was the case. Yeah. It's just a shame it isn't like it was. We even had a school orchestra. In a primary school, we had a school orchestra that would play every morning in assembly. Wow. I mean, how's that for support? Just because we had a supportive music teacher who just loved it. Yeah. We would do a show every term. There'd be a musical and the orchestra would play, the choir would sing at a whole show, you know. The art department would get involved with the scenery and unbelievable. And you hear it from, from all of your stories. There was that spark was somebody encouraging you. Or, yeah. or introducing you. That, and it, that one person. You still do yeah. need that. Emma, how is it for you? I mean, nowadays, having to miss part of your school day to go and have a, a music lesson in primary school uh, or secondary, was that some of your experience as well? And did you feel that you had to push that little bit more to create that balance between school life and music? I think in hindsight, looking back, it looks a lot more difficult than it was at the time. It was something that I just... I really wanted to do so it never felt like I was making huge sacrifices although looking back I think it was quite difficult to fit like just physically fit in even 20 minutes practice within the day certainly in primary school my mum would help me do that before school but that meant like an 8am practice session <laughs> that I think quite often ended in Shouting or, or tears. tears, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Quite quickly, I I ended up auditioning for Cheatham's School of Music for that reason. I think that it was just impossible to fit in doing the amount that I wanted to be doing. So yeah, looking back, I did miss out on on other activities, but at the time, it, I didn't really question it. I don't think I ever really looked ahead into the future and thought, 
I want to end up here or this is what I want to do for my career. It just happened pretty organically and I was having a nice time. (laughs) (laughs) What has been your proudest moment in music, Lyndon? Getting the job at the LPO. Why? Just absolutely proudest point because you try for years and years and years and you do auditions and you go and play concerts and it almost seemed to me that the sort of culmination of everything I'd done in 20 odd years in music just for them to take you aside after being on trial take you aside and saying we really like you playing we'd like you to come and play with the orchestra full time it was uh, beautiful simple Well, thank you all so much for sharing your journeys with me, your passions, and I wish you all the very, very best for the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to Emma Oldfield, Lyndon Meredith and David Quiggle for revealing their musical journeys and how they came to be in the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Please get in touch using the hashtag OffstagePod and thank you for listening. Do join me for the next episode of LPO Offstage. See you then. Listener.